It is so good to see those of you that are here and to know, again, as always, that we have so many uh, that are watching online. Last week, I told you that one of the things that I most love and appreciate about this church family is our young people, our children. And one of my favorite conversations to have with kids for several years now, I'll go up to a kid and I'll ask them how old they are. Of course, they'll tell me I'm five or whatever it is. And I'll ask them, do you like being five? And they don't really know how to answer that. So then I, I follow that up with, do you like being five better than when you were four? And they usually say yes. I've never had a kid say, no, actually five's kind of a disappointment. I wish I could go back to being four. Very rarely do they, they say yes. But then I always ask, why? Why do you like being five better than you liked being four? I, w- I want to see, is five living up to all of your expectations? Are, are, you, are you fulfilled more now than you were before? Do you get to do more things now than you did before? Is life better now than it was before? What's different now that you're five than when you were four? Now, m- most of the reason I think that I, I have this conversation with kids is that I want to avoid the cliche question of what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Because I know that kids always get asked that. I always got asked that, and, and I kind of rolled my eyes every time somebody would ask me that question. But it is a good question. What do you want to be when you grow up? But I think we need to not limit that question to kids. I, I think all of us need to wrestle with that question, don't we? Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What, what are you aspiring to? What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? I think we all need to wrestle with this, not just young children. We all need to to ask, what exactly is it that I'm chasing? What am I pursuing? And here's a statement that I I think will introduce this series well, and I, I hope that we'll wrestle with this week and throughout this month. A lot can be said about our values based on the people we admire and that to which we aspire. I want us to think about that for a second. A lot can be said about our values based on the people we admire and that to which we aspire. So I want us to think about that on a personal level. Who is it that I admire? Who is it that I admire? Maybe it's specific people. Maybe there's specific people that you really admire and you think, this is a great person. This is a great man. This is a great woman. I wish I could be more like this person. Or maybe it's more in generalities. I really admire people who are like this. I really admire people who are like that. I really admire people who do this or who live this way or who have achieved X, Y, and Z. I think these kinds of people are really great. I think these kind of people are really successful. I admire these kinds of people, and I aspire to have a life like theirs. And then we could think about that same question collectively, couldn't we? Who is it that we collectively admire? As a culture, who do we admire? What sorts of people do we admire? We could make a pretty long list, couldn't we? celebrities and athletes and politicians. We can make a pretty long list of the sorts of people, the types of people, the kind of people that we admire and the things to which we aspire. What, what are the sorts of things, what are, the, what are the lifestyles that we aspire to, that we want to have, that, that we're chasing after? What does 
greatness in our mind look like? What does success look like? Who do you admire and, and to what sort of lifestyle do you aspire? What are you, what are you looking to gain? What are you chasing after? What are you pursuing? What does greatness and success look like in your mind? Because that question, the answer to that question tells a lot about our values, doesn't it? What do we value? What do we think life is all about? What is it, what should it look like to go after these sorts of things? How should we live our lives? What is an admirable life look like? What does it look like to gain the things that we should gain? What are the sorts of things that we should be pursuing? And so this month, for the next three weeks, I want to spend some time thinking about how Jesus talks about this, because in the Gospel account of Matthew, there are several times where Jesus talks about greatness, and he helps us to redefine greatness. And as important as that was in the first century with his first century followers, it's just as important, maybe even more so, in our culture today. Who are the people that we admire, and and what are the things to which we aspire? What is success? What is greatness? So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. And the text says in Matthew 18 and verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in God's kingdom? Now, we probably know that this is probably a reflection of their personal their personal success seeking, right? This is probably their own personal aspirations because they're, they're kind of hoping that it's them. Maybe they're even asking Jesus, who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to sit at your left hand? Who's going to have the, the places and the seats of honor in your kingdom? Jesus, we know, we know you're the Messiah. We know that you are in the process of bringing God's kingdom. We know that you are proclaiming the good news about God's kingdom. We believe it, and we're on board, and we want to be a part of it. Not only do we want to be a part of it, we, we want seats of honor. And so this is probably a reflection of their personal aspirations, because they want seats of honor in God's kingdom. But, but if we're honest, we're all sort of seeking greatness, aren't we? We're all sort of seeking greatness. The question is, what does greatness look like in your mind? What did greatness look like in their mind? What would it mean? What would it mean? Beyond who is the greatest in God's kingdom, who is the greatest in heaven's kingdom, maybe we ought to ask, what? What is greatness? What does greatness really look like? What does that that mean to be the greatest in heaven's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven? in God's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. Think through how greatness is measured in various kingdoms. What makes someone great or superior in a particular kingdom? Well, it depends on the kingdom, doesn't it? It depends on the values of that kingdom. In some kingdoms, it may be genealogy and ancestry. Whoever has the best pedigree is the greatest, right? This person is greater than that person because they come from a better family. They have a better ancestry. They have a better genealogy. And and they come from better stock. 
And so in some kingdoms, the greatest is determined by genealogy. In other kingdoms, it might be wealth and possessions. Whoever has the most stuff, they're the greatest. Whoever can prove their greatness with all of their gold and silver and jewels, whoever can prove their greatness by their house or their car or their whatever. In some kingdoms, wealth and possessions are the measure of greatness. In other kingdoms, it might be knowledge and education. Whoever knows the most, whoever is the the most highly educated is the greatest. In other kingdoms, it might be skill or ability or accomplishment. Whoever works the hardest is the greatest. Whoever is the most hardworking and who achieves the most, that's the greatest in some particular kingdoms. Or how about courage and just brute strength? Whoever is the, the best warrior, that's the greatest. If we ask a question like that, who's the greatest in this kingdom, Well, it it says a lot about the kingdom, doesn't it? And we have to know something about the kingdom to know who is the greatest in this particular kingdom. Who do you suppose that the apostles, that the first century followers of Jesus, who do you suppose they thought was the greatest in heaven's kingdom? Who do you think is the greatest? See, this is why it all comes down to the people you admire and that to which you aspire. What do you think of as being great? Do you think greatness is about how much you know? Do you think greatness is about how much you have? Do you think greatness is how much you can achieve? Do you think greatness is how strong you are? What do you think greatness is all about? Who do you admire? And what sorts of things do you aspire to? Look at verse 2. Because this, this, I'm sure, shocked them in the first century. And if we're honest, it should continue to shock us today. Verse 2. And calling to him a, what? A child. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now now think about what he doesn't do. Think about what Jesus doesn't do. What you might expect for him to do. Jesus doesn't look around at whoever is standing near him because obviously there was a child, so there were other people around, and he he calls a child, but he, he could have said, is there a warrior in the house? We got a soldier or somebody who's strong, who has a lot of courage and strength and power and might. Come come over here, I need a warrior so I can use you as an example. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, do we have a a business owner, somebody who owns a business and who's been very successful in business? Come over, I need to use you as an example. He doesn't find a scholar. He doesn't find a scribe. He doesn't find a Pharisee. He doesn't find a philosopher and say, come here, I need to use you as an example. I need somebody who's achieved a lot. I I need somebody who's been really successful. I need somebody who's really strong. I need somebody who's really smart. I need somebody who's really wealthy. He doesn't do any of that. We would expect him to, wouldn't we? Because that's the way it works in almost every kingdom. In almost every kingdom, something like that Something like that is the measure of greatness. Something like success. 
Something like knowledge, something like wealth, something like power, something like influence, something like strength. Surely, surely Jesus can find somebody who's strong, somebody who's powerful, somebody who's influential, somebody who's wealthy, somebody who's achieved a lot, and bring them over and say, be like this guy, be like him. I mean, those are the books we read, aren't they? Those are the books we read. We don't read books written by five-year-olds, the things I learned in kindergarten, right? We don't, we don't read a memoir like that because we don't want to know how do I be like a five-year-old. We want to know how do I be like the businessman who's super successful. How do I be like the warrior who's fought lots of battles? How do I be like the philosopher? How do I be like the scholar? How do I be like this person? Because those are the people we admire. And Jesus doesn't call anybody like that. He calls a child. And then as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't shocking enough, as if that wasn't insulting enough, Jesus says to his followers, unless you turn, unless you turn, unless you stop going the way you're going, unless you stop pursuing what you're pursuing, unless you stop chasing what you're chasing, unless you get off the road you're on and get on a different road, Not only will you not achieve greatness, not only will you not be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you won't even get in. I mean, that's that's incredibly shocking, isn't it? In order to get into the kingdom, in order to be a part of the kingdom, forget greatest in the kingdom. I know that's what you're all aspiring to, but unless you turn and become like this little boy, you will not even enter God's kingdom. And again, we have to reflect on this, don't we? And ask ourselves, who do we admire? And to what sort of life are we aspiring? Look at verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, notice the word humbles. Whoever humbles himself like this child. Now, When we think about humility, we think somebody has a really good attitude, right? We think about their attitude. But really, to humble yourself literally means to lower yourself to a lower position. It's to put yourself at a lower position. I don't think he necessarily has in mind this particular child's attitude, or even children in general. Sometimes we read this passage and we're like, oh, yes, because children are so sweet and kind and humble. I mean, some kids are, right? Some kids aren't, though. I mean, I've, I've been slapped by a kid or two. I mean, they're not all sweet and nice, right? So he's not necessarily talking about their personal qualities. He's talking about their status. Because all children, especially in the first century, had this in common. They don't have anything. Nothing they have belongs to them. They haven't achieved anything. They don't have any wealth They don't have any power. They don't have any status. They're not rulers. They really don't know a whole lot because they have to be helped. They have to be taught. They have to learn. They are at the lowest rung on the social ladder. And that's especially true in the first century. And so it's incredibly shocking that Jesus says, if you want to forget being the greatest, but if you even want to enter in, then you have to turn. And become like a child. And whoever does, whoever humbles himself, lowers himself, like this little child, whoever has, 
but lives as if he has not. Whoever has power but lives as if he doesn't have power. Whoever has wealth but lives as if he doesn't have wealth. Whoever has strength but lives as if he didn't have strength. Whoever has status but lives as if he didn't have status. Whoever lowers himself and humbles himself like this little child, that, that person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, I mean, really this may, should make us just stop and say, what kind of kingdom is this? What kind of upside-down kingdom is this? That a child would be held up as the pinnacle of greatness, as the one we ought to admire and that to which we ought to aspire. This is the kingdom where humility is valued over strength, where humility is valued over power, where humility is valued over accomplishments, where humility is valued over wealth. The greatest, whoever's the greatest in God's kingdom, whoever's the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, whoever's greatest in heaven's kingdom, doesn't say, I'm strong. They say, I'm weak. Whoever's the greatest in Jesus' kingdom doesn't say, I'm powerful. They say, I'm powerless. Whoever's greatest in Jesus' kingdom doesn't say, I'm holy. They say, I have sinned. And doesn't this match up exactly with how Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember his Beatitudes? He doesn't say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the strong, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the warriors. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. See, it's an incredibly upside-down kingdom that this is what is valued. That humility is valued over strength. That humility is valued over power. That humility is valued over accomplishment. That humility is valued over wealth. Jesus, Jesus says, this is what it looks like in the kingdom. And unless you turn, unless you humble yourself and you lower yourself to a lower status and you stop seeking higher status, you're not even going to get in. The greatest in the kingdom is not the one who says, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I'm wealthy. It's the one who says, I am nothing. I have nothing. Now again, Humility isn't about hating yourself. It's not about hating yourself. In fact, in order to be self-loathing, we have to be self-absorbed, don't we? Self-loathing is a form of self-absorption. As many have said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's that you are absorbed with his greatness, with his strength, with his power, with his might, with his holiness, with his wealth, and not your own. And you seek to lower yourself rather than seeking a higher rung on the ladder. Look at verse 5. He kind of switches gears a little bit and doesn't just say whoever becomes like this child, but goes on to say whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And here I don't think, again, throughout this text, I don't think he literally has in mind just little children, although that would certainly apply. But he's saying whoever receives people like this, 
People that are poor in spirit, people who mourn, people who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are persecuted, whoever receives those who say, I am weak, whoever receives thee, as the message translation says, the childlike, when you receive the childlike on my account, it's the same as receiving me. Now again, think about the the shocking nature of what Jesus is saying. Because he doesn't say, when you receive great people, you receive me. When you receive powerful people, you receive me. When you receive knowledgeable people, you receive me. When you receive courageous people, you receive me. Nope. He says, when you receive people like this child, you receive me. Yet how many times, how many times do we prefer to receive the ones the world perceives as great. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, and I've probably even been guilty of saying it. In the church world, we often think about how how great it would be to have a billionaire who was part of the congregation, right? Wouldn't that be great? We could convert this billionaire. Oh, we'd have all of their influence and all of their wealth that could help accomplish all the things we want to accomplish. We would love to receive a billionaire. We'd love to receive somebody who was famous. We'd love to receive somebody who was influential. We'd love to receive somebody who was powerful. And Jesus says, nope, it's not the way it works in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say when you receive them, you receive me. He says when you receive the childlike, you receive me. When you receive the weak, you receive me. When you you receive the ones who are powerless, you receive me. When you receive the ones who need help, you receive me. When you receive the ones who need support, you receive me. When you receive the ones who are poor in spirit, you receive me. You say, wait, wait a second. Are you saying we shouldn't receive billionaires? Are you saying we shouldn't receive people who are wealthy or influential or famous? Of course not. But they, just like me and just like you, have to turn have to turn, have to repent. Being great doesn't disqualify us from being part of God's kingdom, but thinking we're great does. Let me say that again. Being great by the world standards doesn't disqualify us from being part of God's kingdom, but thinking we're great does. And how often, how often are we tempted to leverage what we perceive as our greatness for our own advantage and say things like, well, don't you, don't you know who I am? And don't, don't you know how much I contribute? And don't you know what I can do? And don't you know who my friends are? And don't you know how influential I am? That sort of attitude has to change. Jesus is even telling his closest followers of his day, you have to change. You have to turn. This pursuit of what you perceive as greatness has to change. It has to give way to this new way of thinking where you look at a little child and say, I want to be more like that. I want to be more helpless like that. I want to be less knowledgeable like that. I I want to know my own limitations like that. I want to lower myself like that rather than seeking a higher rung on the ladder. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you do that, the people who do that are the greatest in the kingdom. And for the rest of us, when we receive people like that, 
when we receive the humble, when we receive the poor in spirit, when we receive the persecuted, when we receive those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the people who don't say, I'm strong, the people who say, I am weak, when we receive them, Jesus says, we receive Jesus. We receive him. And he goes even further than this. He says in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a sobering place to stop, isn't it? But I, I think it's, it's powerful and important for us to let this sink in. Because honestly, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, who are we most afraid to offend? Who are we most afraid to cause to stumble and fall away? Who were even in the first century, there were times when the disciples came to Jesus and said, don't you know that offended the Pharisees when you said that? And Jesus didn't say, I don't care, but it kind of sounded like he didn't much care, right? And we're, we're afraid of the same thing, aren't we? We're, we're afraid we're going to offend the people that are influential. We're afraid we're going to offend the people that are strong. We're afraid we're going to offend the people that are wealthy. We're afraid we're going to offend the people that, whatever. And how many times, how many times in the church, how many times over the centuries, over the decades, in congregation after congregation after congregation, has sin been allowed to fester? Sin been allowed to continue because nobody wanted to offend the powerful. Nobody wanted to offend the wealthy. Nobody wanted to offend the influential. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the little ones, the humble ones, the powerless ones got walked all over. And people were taking advantage of and despising and walking all over those who were powerless and deferring to those who were powerful. And Jesus says, this is not the way it's supposed to work in the kingdom. In fact, Jesus identifies himself so much with the powerless, with the little ones, with the childlike. And he says, when you receive them, when you watch out for them, you're watching out for me. When you receive them, you're receiving me. So much so, if you cause them to stumble... And you say, who cares? Who cares what they think? They're not, they're not rich. Who cares what they think? They're not influential. Who cares what they think? That they're inconsequential. When you say that, Jesus says, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you be cast into the sea. In other words, you mess with them, you mess with him, right? You mess with them, you mess with Jesus. Jesus says, we, we have to turn. We have to change the way we think about greatness. We have to change the way we think about being successful. We have to change who we admire and that to which we aspire. We have to turn and become like a humble child. Let me, let me get real specific. What would it look like what would it look like to count humility as the true measure of greatness? If this is true, if Jesus' words are true, and we believe they are, amen? 
that this is the true measure of greatness, that humility is the true measure of greatness. If that's true, then what would it look like for me and you? Number one, we would aspire to do good without recognition, without letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. We would aspire not to be remembered, but be, to be forgotten. Wouldn't that be something? We would aspire to be forgotten. Just do good, whether anybody knows about it or not, whether anybody recognizes it or not, whether anybody remembers it or not. To have this aspiration, I just want people to know Jesus, and I don't care whether or not they know me. We would aspire to do good without recognition. Number two, we would accept insult without reprisal. We would be slapped on the cheek and turn, let them slap the other without repercussion, without revenge. In fact, we would, we would look at it and we would realize that I, I pray, but by loving them. If we really, if we really recognize that humility is the true measure of greatness, then when somebody insults us, we have this carnal inclination, don't we, to say, I have to prove I'm strong. They insulted me. They insulted me. I have to prove my strength. I have to, I have, to have a little comeback. I have to have a little zinger. I have to, I have to get back at them. No. Nope. When we recognize that humility is the true measure of greatness, then we recognize that we prove our strength not by getting even, but by loving them. Number three, we ask questions, admit mistakes, and confess sin freely. I'll be honest. One of the hardest parts of admitting mistakes and confessing sin and asking questions is we don't want people to know we don't know the answer or we messed up or we sinned. I don't want anybody to know I'm weak. I don't want anybody to know I was foolish. I don't want anybody to know I don't know that answer. And so we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. And isn't that what Jesus is saying? When you put yourself on the level of a child, you don't have to be embarrassed. There's nowhere to go from there. You don't have to be ashamed. The only shameful sin is the one that's not confessed. There shouldn't be. I don't know what to do now. I messed up. I sinned. That's what we all have in common. That's why we're all here, isn't it? What we all have in common is our brokenness, is our sinfulness, is our ignorance. And we need the Lord and we are helplessly dependent on Him. So why is it that so often we put on a facade and we pretend like we know the answer? Or we pretend like we haven't messed up? Or we pretend we don't have any sin to confess? We say, no, 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 I'm good, I'm fine, everything's good. When really there's a sin festering inside that we are too ashamed and embarrassed to admit. This is what happens when we don't accept that humility is the greatest measure of greatness. This is how we measure greatness. So it isn't the person who says, I have no sin to confess that's great in the kingdom of God. It's the one that says, how much time you got? I got a lot to confess. I got a lot of questions to ask. That's the greatest in the kingdom. Number four, admire humility the way others admire beauty and power and wealth and influence and fame. Our values have to be totally upside down from that of the unbelieving world, don't they? And so often they're, they're really just a mirror reflection of the values we had before we came to Christ. Jesus says you have to turn. 
You have to turn. You have to repent. You have to change the way you think about success. You have to change the way you think about greatness. And it's not the person on top that's the greatest. It's the person on the bottom. It's the one who's willing to admit their own lack of knowledge, their own lack of goodness, their own lack of strength. A lot can be said about our values based on the people we admire and that to which we aspire. As Christians, the one we admire above all others should be Jesus. Should be Jesus. The one who took all of his strength and all of his power and all of his glory, Father, and he laid it aside and became a servant to serve and die for us. That's the one we admire and we aspire to take up our cross and follow him. That's what our aspiration should look like. We should aspire to servanthood. We should aspire to cross-bearing. We should aspire to laying aside our power, our strength, our wealth, our influence, our whatever, to be more like the one we claim to follow. And that journey of admiring Jesus and aspiring to be like him It begins at baptism, doesn't it? That's what Paul says baptism is. It's a being buried with him. It's a dying with him. So much so that Paul could say in Galatians, he says, I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I don't live anymore. This life is his life. It belongs to him. I've identified with him. I'm connected to him. My life is totally wrapped up in and absorbed by Jesus. That's what baptism should be. So that when we come up out of that water, we walk in a newness of life. A newness not just in saying no to sin, but a newness in redefining even what greatness looks like. Redefining what success looks like. Redefining who we admire and the life to which we aspire. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And we're all struggling through that together. So if we can help you this morning, now is a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.